Hello, and welcome to the FinTech Marketing Podcast. In today's episode, I talk to Stephen Kalifowitz, CMO at Crypto.com. We talk about a broad range of topics, Stephen's experience coming up through the agency world, like I did, and what it's like to be CMO at an incredibly exciting, hyper-growth stage company in Crypto.com. I actually didn't know they're already at 1,000 people, so his role, while it is at a startup, he's got a lot of experience and perspective on what it means to be a CMO at a company at that stage. So we talk a lot about the future. He's got a lot of really interesting ideas and insights, talking about NFTs, his journey from working at HBO, being a producer, to now CMO at Crypto.com. And also, what I really loved is how he talked about how important it is to hire the right people. So tons of advice, tons of insights. Excited for you to hear it. Before we get into it, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Whatever your payment plans, Visa, the world's leader in digital payments, is on hand with the expertise, programs, solutions, and partner networks to help make it happen. Bring your big idea to life. Partner with Visa to do it bigger and faster. Visit visa.co.uk slash fintech. Today's guest is Stephen Kalifowitz, CMO at Crypto.com. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. It's great to be here. How are things in Hong Kong these days? You know, we're, we're very lucky. Not too much COVID, uh, very, almost zero. Yeah, on, on, on the whole, uh, it's, it's good. Awesome. All right, let's get into it. So the one question that I ask every guest, what are you obsessed with right now? Right now, it has to be NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unpack that for me. Are you personally obsessed with it? Are you professionally obsessed with it? What are you doing? What's your perspective? Let's talk. Yeah, it's, um, I'm both personally and professionally obsessed with it because it represents a, such a new opportunity for fans and for collectors to engage with the brands. And, and when I say brands, I don't mean like SC Johnson. I, I mean like, you know, the brands and the franchises in the sports world, in the arts world, in the music world, and worlds that are still only being created now. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, I remember the days when you could buy CDs and box sets. And that was pretty cool. And like owning a box set was like a statement, right? Like it was on your shelf, like it was beautifully designed, even if it was made of cardboard. And it had tracks that just, we're never going to be on radio. Like no one was ever going to hear them. And like, you know, it would be like outtakes from the studio or it would be like live concerts. And the act of buying that, it didn't feel like you were investing in the artist per se. It was more a statement about your super fandom. And if you put it in your office or at your house or something, there's something really special about that. And that doesn't exist in digital. And there's so, and I could keep going, but there's so many examples of, how you know digital has given us a lot but also has taken away certain types of experiences and relationships and you know we shouldn't only look to replicate what was in the past but rather find new ways of doing that as we move into the future and that is what i believe is the promise of nfts and when it comes to content and i've been making content for over 20 years now that for me is a really exciting opportunity to actually rethink you know the shift from watching something live to watching it streamed or watching live sports or watching clips on Instagram or on Twitter, like that was just sort of changing how and when we watch stuff. It didn't fundamentally change our relationship with the things we're watching. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And the way that I think about it is everything is driven by human psychology and sociology, Yeah, right? And so 
what happens in the online world is what happened, what has happened in the offline world, because it's the same trends. Like we don't evolve that quickly as a species. And so we're going to do the things that we have always done in the offline world. We're going to do them in the online world. And people have always in modern society bought things that have no inherent value because of how it made them feel and how it represented themselves to others. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just what this is. Like, right. and, and like, it's going to happen and, yeah. you know, people can get tripped up on, well, it's virtual and other people can make copies of it. It doesn't matter. Like it, people will, will do this. And so I think what we're seeing with art and, and sports cards and kind of like these initial NFTs out there right now, I mean, first of all, I think there probably is a bit of a bubble in terms of what people are paying that will die down at some point, but the general trend of people paying money for things that have no inherent value to represent them this is the digital version of that. I think you're right to a degree, you know, cause like what is inherent value, right? Like, <laughs> like, you know, I, do I need, do I need a Ferrari or do I just need a way to get from point A to point B, uh, right? Like value is what you make of it. And so I, I would say that, it, you know, and I've had, I've had this discussion a lot uh, for, for pretty much all of this year and, and started at the end of last year. Why is a baseball card? It's 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 ink on a piece of cardboard. Why does that have any value? Why? Well, there's a few good reasons. One is you can verify the provenance of it. Right? You can verify how many of them there are and which one of the original set it was. And you can verify and and, and the provenance is important cuz you know that you're getting it from the source. Right? Why is an original dolly, let's say, valuable? But I could buy a life-size replica on like posters.com or whatever shipped to my house for $5. Like what, what is the delta there, right? And it's because it's the original one. It was made by the artist. You can verify that, right? Well, so w why is the digital version of that exact timeline worth any less, right? I could go to a museum and take a picture, print it out and put it on my wall. Like, is it the same? No. It's just not like they're, they're whether or not others can understand the value. You just need one person to think it's valuable. And we're just at the beginning, right? Like the, the example I give to some people is like, you know, email, the, the day email was created, like it looked just like a memo, right? And emails today still look like memos. There's a to, there's a from, there's a subject line, right? And even the format, you open every email with hi, so-and-so, and then you write a body and then you end it. Right. Like the emails to this day still look like a memo did the day before email was created. But, you know, who could have imagined that we'd have Slack? Right. Like to me, email is where I get my spam and Slack or like permission based communication tools like Slack or WhatsApp or Telegram. That's where I spend most of my day. Right. And, and who could have imagined that that's where we're going to go in business communication. But it's once we started getting into it and playing with the medium. And that's what I'm excited most about NFTs, not how they look today. Today, they're, they're just like email was to memos. It's just, it's just a carbon copy. Where we go with NFTs, where all of a sudden a collectible isn't just something you look at, but it could be something that you do something with, right? Walk on, you know, you buy a song, a, a certain limited editions, a certain number of editions, and all of a sudden that becomes your walk on music when you're going to an esports battle. Right. And we can verify and, and like only you can play that music because you're only one of a few owners of it and it will have value to you because all of a sudden people will adopt these things. And then it will be like, oh, yeah, you can't just play any music where you don't have the right to do it. Only people who bought the music. And so all of a sudden ownership of these things and then utility of that ownership 
it's it's just the things we're going to be able to do is going to be insane. And I think models like YouTube, I'm going to be controversial here for a second. YouTube's business model of basically rolling over rights that 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 artists have and just yeah. saying, I don't care, sue me. And oh, by the way, I could give you pennies from the ads I'm putting on top of your content. Like that's why I think so many people have an issue with selling digital stuff because they're like, but I can just see it on YouTube. I can see a version of the future that where YouTube's model, it gets really hurt because everyone's going to say, wait, I'm not putting stuff on YouTube and I'm going to enforce my right to to tell YouTube, take it down because that content was sold to these people as an NFT and YouTube, you do not have the right to just put it up for free and put ads against it. And when that changes and everyone's like, oh yeah, wait, wh- why was it just available for free? Right? Look at the news world. Find me a news website that doesn't have a paywall. News isn't free anymore. At least good news. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, it's an evolution. And the first iteration of a new technology typically is just an application of what, what we're used to in that new world. And then the next iteration is actually building on top of that. The way that we talk about it at 11FS is there's analog, there's digitized which is just the digitized version of the analog, like you said, with email and memos. And then there's truly digital when you build from scratch with the technology and also the culture around those things once they've been accepted. And I think with NFTs, when it, when it comes to the world of marketing, I think what's really interesting and what I'd suggest people think about for, for those listening, you know, any, any brand that has IP, any brand that has something that, you know, characters or ideas or anything like that, I think can be eventually translated to the world of NFTs. And it is also a really interesting way to think about building community because it's not just about having something with an NFT, it's also about having access. And so I think that's going to be really interesting as well. So Steven, let's talk a little bit about your background. I have to ask for our production team. How did you, you know, you came up through production, production background, then transitioned and, and are now CMO. Tell us a little bit about your professional journey. And then I'm also curious how your production background shapes how you think about what you do as a chief marketing officer. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I might be a little bit cliche, you know, and saying just, I'm just a curious person, but maybe I'll, I'll use a story and, uh, you know, a guy, Mike Davies, who, uh, I worked with at HBO. He, he told me this story once and it stuck with me. He told me the story probably 16 years ago and it really stuck with me throughout. He says that we were talking about career and what we do. And he said to me, you know, I've got this plant in my house. And he's like, it's this crazy plant because, you know, it, I put it in a pot and then it gets really big. And then once it can't grow anymore, it just stops growing and it just stays there. And he's like, and then I've done this a few times. He's like I take it out of the pot, I put it in a bigger pot. And then it gets bigger again until it maximizes its growth in that pot. And then if I don't move it to another pot, it's just going to stay that size. He's like, it's pretty crazy. And he said, that plant is you. And he's like, where you are in life right now is the pot. And he was like, you've maximized your growth. And he's like, you know, I don't want to tell you to leave the company or whatever, but like, there's literally no growth for you now. And if, if you want to grow, you got to unpot yourself. And I, I, I just sort of, like it just stuck with me my whole life and because that's really what I wanted to do, but I didn't understand that concept of like, wait, I'm not a plant. <laughs> I'm a person. I can actually get up and move. And so then I started going on this journey of like, well, what am I going to do? Because my whole life, you know, growing up, I just, I wanted to be in the film business. Right. And and I had done it. I, I was at HBO. I, had, you know, produced television. I produced live boxing. I produced documentaries. I, you know, done lots of fun stuff 
you know, before that, coming up in the industry, I was a production coordinator and a production assistant on music videos. I'd done all kinds of really, really fun stuff. And I was like, what do I do? And then I started applying for jobs. And I, I like what you said about analog and then digitized. I was looking at like, okay, maybe there's like digital jobs for TV. So I was looking at like NBC was starting their initial, this is like in their mid 2000s. They were starting their like digital TV and they were like, oh, you don't have any internet background. And then I went to this, uh, somehow a friend of a friend of a friend connected me with somebody uh, at RGA, a uh, digital agency in New York at the time. We were on 39th Street and uh, you know, had an office there. And I had remembered being a production assistant on a TV commercial we shot there in like 1998. And so I thought I was going to a TV studio. In fact, I didn't even realize RGA was a, a, a digital advertising firm. And when I went in the interview, they're like, well, you don't have any internet or technology background. And I was like, yeah, but you know, when you guys launch a website, like, does anybody notice? I was like, when I put on a TV show, when I put on a live boxing match, like the whole world is on notice that at a certain minute, that broadcast better start. And I was like, I know how to do that. And I'm like, I don't man the cameras and I don't point the lights. Uh, I don't edit the videos. I know what it takes to do it. I know how to manage the people. And I said, so I'm not going to code your websites and I'm not going to design them either. I might write some copy for it, but you know, I'll figure all that out. But knowing how to manage people and get things done on time, uh, and get them done on budget, like I can do that. And they kind of, you know, took a chance on me. And it was one of the best schools I ever went to because I then went in there with this mindset of, I have so much to learn and I have so much to prove. Like they just took a chance on me. And so, it, you know, I just went to work every day as if I was going to school, right? Every day. And I would just ask tons and tons and tons of questions that I realized shortly after a lot of people were scared to ask because no one wanted to show that they didn't know what was going on. But I quickly understood that I came from TV world and film world where, you know, 200 people can show up on set. They may have known each other from other shoots that they've been on, but everybody knew what everybody else's job was. Everybody knew what the gaffer's job was. Everybody knew what the set designer's job was and the wardrobe person. And everybody else knew what everyone else's job was. And they could just show up and instantaneously put on a shoot. Whereas when you, in the mid 2000s, when, when everybody came together to build a website, Nobody really knew what anybody's job was. They were kind of figuring it out. And then when we started building mobile apps, like it was just like, okay, how do you do this? Right? And, and like, where, where does the job of the designer and then the, 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 the engineer begin and end? And, you know, strategist versus a producer. It was all pretty fluid. And so I was lucky in that, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. So I wasn't alone. Uh, and we were figuring it out as we were going. And then, you know, so things went well at RGA. I, I moved out to Singapore in 2010. Uh, to build the office there. And then once again, I was like in a new pod where like, I didn't know anything about, you know, how to run an agency, but they took a chance on me. And, you know, I've been entrepreneurial and I've always been business minded and, you know, I wasn't just marketing. I was, it's like, I was always focused on how are their outcomes. So when I got there, it was like pretty natural for me to try to figure out how to build the business. But also I realized again, like no one else knew what to do. Right? Like, like no one else had set up a new business in Singapore in 2010 and at the time of all the things that were going on in the world. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll try to figure it out like everybody else. You know, ask lots of questions and, and I'll make lots of partnerships. And I have friends to this day who like I met in Singapore in 2010 because they were also figuring things out at their companies. Um, and then in 2013, I moved over to uh, Twitter because that was another like pot to grow out of. I sort of set everything up for RGA and I was ready to do the next thing. Um, I also sort of felt that the agency model needed a big change and that I, I wasn't ready to make that change to the agency model and the, the world was going to change agencies and it has. 
uh, and I went over to Twitter because that was in the, another challenge. And again, I, got, I remember I got to Twitter and I'm like, all right, so what's the what's this plan for Asia? And they're like, I don't know, figure it out. And I was like, at that point in my career, I was like, all right, yeah, like like the, I've I've been through this script a few times. Like I show up and I don't know what to do, but neither does anybody else. Um, and and then fast forward here at Crypto.com, um, this team actually knows a lot of what to do. They, they, before I got here, what they had built was incredible. But there are still I was drawn here because of the unsolved problem. Right. There is no big crypto brand out in the world. There is no one in the crypto space that knows how to tell a good story uh, to the people who aren't already believers. Right? They're really good at, at, at preaching to the converted. They're not really good at, at telling the story to everybody else. That's one of my biggest uh, tasks to do uh, that I'm in the process of doing. And for me, that's super exciting because it's not just about the company, it's about the industry. Right? The industry is going through this massive transition. Uh, of going from from being niche and early adopter to, to early majority. It's, it's a book, Crossing the Chasm, uh, which which captures where we are perfectly. So yeah, that's, that, that's a bit of my story. Definitely would recommend that if anybody hasn't read it, Crossing the Chasm. So so let's double click on that then. I mean, you know, particularly with what's happened over the last six months, and you talk about NFTs and crypto and all that world just becoming, not mainstream, of course, but like you said, going into the, you know, the early majority, how are you approaching telling the brand story in a space that's getting more and more crowded, has a lot of buzz and hype around it? How are you trying to ground the brand in the story that you want to tell and also educate people to make it something that can be more mainstream? So my marketing and strategy hat would tell you to stay tuned because you're going to find out very soon. But uh, for the purposes of the podcast, I would say that, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time trying to understand how to balance the promise of the industry with the reality and how to, as you said, come back to like, well, what drives people emotionally and, and what drives them to understand things or not? Because, you know, what's that line? Like, you can you can tell me and I'll forget. You can show me and I might remember. But if you involve me, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll be with you forever. You know, I, I try to think about things at those scales. Those are some of the things that you know, like RGA was just such an amazing school for me because, you know, in many ways it wasn't a regular ad agency. We didn't deal, you know, we built experiences and we looked at marketing as experiential, but not like go to an event. It was like fundamentally telling people something wasn't enough or just showing them something wasn't enough. And so, so I fundamentally, that's where I start. And then, and then I sort of back into the more reach and frequency things. Cool. So what about your general philosophy on marketing? And obviously what you just talked about is I'm sure a big part of it, but what matters most to you? What does good look like? Talk to us about, you know, your, your perspective on marketing in general. Sure. Uh, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune over the last bunch of years to work with really big brands. And also, you know, I skipped one piece. I, I, I between Twitter and Crypto.com, I, I was back in New York, and I had launched a seed stage startup called Localized.City, and you know, that was like at the smallest scale I'd ever worked at. Having the perspective of like supporting P and G and companies like that, and then go down to like a seed stage startup that didn't even have a name when I joined it. There are different rules that apply at different stages. Right. So for a company that nobody knows, the only thing that matters is getting awareness, number one. And awareness only matters after, if you're a technology company, have product market fit. 
this is something that, that that's been controversial and it's been controversial for, with a bunch of people I know. They're like, but what do you mean? Like DTC companies, like they don't do anything before they nail their brand. And my response to that is, well, yeah, because brand is all they're selling, right? Everything else is outsourced, right? Like, they, you know, I, I could name a number of companies, but I'll skip that for now. You know, so DTC brands and brands that are just, uh, you know, repackaging something, they're just selling the dream. And so brand is all that matters there. And so, yeah, sure, invest a lot in brand because you have to, once people hook into that story, then they'll buy your commodity product that you've outsourced the production of. But if you're a technology company, you must have product market fit before you invest too much in brand because brand fundamentally is about sticking to a story and about sticking to a way of presenting yourself. And before you have product market fit, you don't even know who your customer is yet. You don't know what the value prop is for that customer. So putting yourself in a straitjacket from a brand perspective just will kill you uh, as, as a company. So, you know, really from a marketing perspective in terms of what's good, I would say it starts with understanding where you are in, in the growth curve and where you are as a company. So if you're, if you're a new fintech company, like you got to figure out your product market fit. You got to know that you have a product that people want to use and you got to get to that as fast as possible. And marketing's job there is to bring as many people as possible. And bring, I don't even want to say the right people because you don't yet know who the right people are, but you got to figure out how to bring them in and then quickly and rapidly with the product team, understand what's working and what's not so that you can, you can figure out how to scale it up before you're worried about brand and, and putting that out there. Brand comes once you're, you're ready to scale up and you need people to, with a blank, understand what you're about and why they would reach for you. Big companies where, you know, they, or, you know, where, I joke with people, I'm like, half the people at your company could go home and you'd probably make more money, right? Big companies that are established, that they have a customer base, they have just revenue that comes in where, you know, having products on shelf matters more than anything else uh, for the bottom line. Those companies there, it's, it's more about how do I stay relevant? How do I not lean back and be lazy? Meaning, you know, just because you have a sponsorship of a team doesn't mean you should keep doing the same thing you've always been do been doing. Um, you know, th there's a lot of opportunities to to say, all right, well, what new things are available? Have some budget for innovation, but don't forget that your competition's constantly coming after you. And so it's it's not all about those innovative but innovation budgets that just you know for the awards. You got to constantly be digging into what moves the needle. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen companies, you know, surprisingly look at things and say, wait a minute. If I just adjust this here, I could do a lot more in sales. And maybe it's not a sexy campaign. Maybe it's not going to win me something it can, but it's going to move the needle for the business. And showing the business that you understand how to move the needle for the business is probably the most important thing you could do as a marketer. I think that philosophy is super interesting. And at a strategic level, that makes sense. Let's take it down one step. Tactically, I know there's some things coming up that you can't talk about, which I'm excited to see see what you're doing. But in the past or in what you're doing currently, how are you executing on some of those marketing strategies that you have? What's actually working or not working with what you're doing at Crypto.com right now? Sure. So you know, I would say I'll, I'll start from the end of your question, what's working or what's not working. The hardest thing to do in the world is hire. That's, you know, having the right team, it sounds so cliche to say it, but having the right team will make or break you. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest things that I've been focusing on here is bringing in great people. And, you know, surprisingly during COVID where everybody thought that lots of 
lots of people are going to lose their jobs and lots of people have in the digital world. It's, it's so hard to find people. I forget about good people. It's so hard to find people. And so, you know, actually, if anybody is listening and is interested in uh, joining crypto.com, uh, I have a lot of different uh, marketing roles open. So that's, I wouldn't say it's not going well. I would say it's the, the place that I stress about the most is making sure that I have the best team, the right people, and that they're set up to execute. And so I'm trying to balance bringing in people who have a bigger company mindset because we're growing dramatically. We have uh, over a thousand people at the company already, and that growth will continue in terms of number of staff at the company. And so, you know, we're going from small startup to to big company really quickly. And so I'm trying to balance bringing in people who understand how to work in a bigger organization where, you know, there's more specialization, right? There's early companies where it's very tight knit between product and marketing and constantly refactoring and adjusting and trying to respond to the market quickly as you're getting product market fit, which is where we were. We now have product market fit with well over 10 million users globally. Uh, and just the active usage of the product is, is amazing. You know, now it's really about scaling that up. And so now I need people who are less, you know, multi-function tools and people who are more specialists, but a lot of those people, um, have a lot of big company baggage, right? I've had some people who started and I said, after the first few weeks, I'm like, so how's it going? And they're like, I really love that there are no wasted meetings. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, in my last company, I think half of the day was spent in meetings that didn't need to happen, but we were just doing them because that's what we've always done. And you know, here, absolutely, like every day you have to move the ball forward. If, if you take a day off, like things literally slow down. And so having people who have that mindset and who can come in and we interview very heavily for that. So, so I'm, I'm giving more of an abstract answer to your, to your question of like, how do I execute on this? But I, I, I can't be more sincere when I say it all starts from the people. Cause like, if I don't have the right people here, we will not build the things we need to build to really take the market. And so having people who have that experience of bigger companies and understand how to specialize, but are also flexible enough to come into an organization where we, as an organization, we haven't been doing certain things like, you know, sports sponsorships. We haven't been doing it for 10 years, right? And so people who join a company and, you know, the company's been sponsoring a certain team for 15 years and they've just extended it for another 10 years. Okay. <laughs> There's a playbook. Everybody knows everybody. Everything just sort of happens. Uh, having people come in and be like, okay, so what do we do? And it's like, I don't know, figure it out. Um, really, that it's very much about that. And then transitioning towards being a more uh, grown-up, uh, or experienced brand where we start getting into these rhythms and we start being less flexible, right? Because flexibility is what got us to where we are. And we have to learn as an organization how to be more consistent uh, in our messaging and how we communicate with the world. That that transition for a company where we are is, is a very hard transition. Uh, and, and managing that is fundamentally how we're going to execute against their strategies. Yeah, and, and obviously we talk a lot about strategy and tactics and the what and the how do matter, but the who is the most important thing. And I think the number one job of the CMO, so it makes sense that you'd answer the question that way. I, I, would, I would only add to that, you know, maybe touching on what I was saying earlier about agencies that like, you know, I remember when I was at Twitter and I had different agency friends uh, ask me, you know, we're trying to get startup clients, you know, and, and we see that startups work with Twitter a lot. Can you tell us like how, how we can get them? And I'm like, I don't know how any startup could hire an agency. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, because a startup does everything in house. 
I was like, the whole mentality of a startup, technology companies in general, is I want to test and learn. And learn is almost the biggest, most important thing there is the entire mentality of the company is if we do something, whether or not it works or not, almost matters less than whether or not we learn something from the experience. Because that learning process helps you unlock things that you couldn't have imagined. And again, that goes back to the, you know, startup, smaller company versus big company. Big companies often just the way they're designed, they're not in a mode to learn. And they need to make an active effort to learn, not because of people that aren't good or they don't want to, but like they're already, they've won. They've won. They've gone public. They've made all the money. They, they are the dominant, you know, business in their category or in their space. And so it's almost like, okay, now I have this, how do I maintain what I have, right? Because I'm at the top rather than companies trying to get to the top, you know, or everything I do, I want to understand why it worked or didn't. And then I want to refactor and I want to go back. And so I'm hiring people from agencies and, and agency people, I find it's, it's amazing is that they used to, when I first went into RGA, I remember people were like, oh, you never want to go client side. And I didn't understand because I didn't come from the marketing world. I'm like, why wouldn't you want to go client side? They're, they're telling us what to do until I learned that no, a lot of clients are, you know, with all due respect, bureaucratic, right? They outsource the, the creativity and the strategy to the agency because when I say bureaucratic, I don't mean it in a bad way. It's just the nature of their job. Their job is to manage the marketing of the company, not create the marketing of the company. And at, at, at startups and certainly technology companies in general, we exist to create things. And so it, having people who are ready to create is super important. Yeah. For sure. So, so building on that, because I think that's a great, you know, snippet of advice and food for thought for people listening. But what other advice do you have for marketers out there in the world of financial services? What are the most important lessons that you've learned over the course of your career? What else can you share that might be helpful? I, I don't want to get too uh, abstract, so stop me if I do. But I'd say there's that line, like, check your ego at the door. I would say, like, check your ego somewhere where you can get rid of it completely and come to work every day without it because it, again i guess that theme of learning like you know this is something when i was agency side and even as a twitter i, I talk with a lot of clients about like be like do you think this is going to be successful and i remember then saying to them well does it matter if it's successful or does it matter if we learn something from this and we design the process to say i'm going to try something and then i'm going to scale it up and what's amazing in my experience with nfts so far because you know crypto.com we have an nft platform uh, and you know, I've been working with a lot of partners in the world to launch their NFTs with us. Done, you know, we had Snoop Dogg launch his first NFTs with us, and, and go right down the line. The, the New York Stock Exchange launched their, launched their first NFTs with us. What's been amazing is that everyone's been approaching NFTs with this test and learn idea. And I remember so many people saying, "No, the company's not designed for testing. Right? We need to do things. We tell our boss we're going to do it. It has to succeed, and we have to move forward." And what I found is that all types of companies and, and organizations and brands and people using NFTs as a bar. A lot of them have been coming at it saying, all right, let's try it out. Let's not commit to something for a hundred years. Let's not commit to having it be a blowout success. Let's try it and see how the audience responds. Uh, and let's work with them. And that comes with a big ability to check your ego and say, I'm, I'm going to do something that uh, I want to learn about. So many people come to the table thinking, well, my title is this, therefore I must know that. And that if I'm wrong, you know, my job is at risk or people may look at me differently on, on, and on. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest things people should focus on is, you know, checking yourself and seeing when is your ego driving you to make potentially bad decisions 
or keep you from making better decisions. I mean, for me, I would say that's number one. Does, does that make sense? Is that too abstract? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's the biggest vulnerability of ego is that it makes you think that you know everything when even if you do, even if you're right, there's always things that you can learn from everybody. So I think walking into every situation, whether it's the tactical execution of a marketing campaign or you know a meet and greet with somebody that you've never talked to or interviewing somebody on a podcast, having the approach of what can I learn? Because no matter what stage you are in your career, although obviously if you're younger and still coming up, it com compounds more over time, You know how much and how quickly you learn, I think is the biggest factor and, on, and one of the most controllable factors to how much opportunity you'll have in front of you. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the only other thing I would add is that relationships really matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I don't say that lightly, like, you know, to the earlier question of, you know, how did I move from producer to, um, to, to CMO? Like, it happened because of relationships. Every job I got was because of people, people who took a chance on me and people who I knew at different points in my life who, like, just made introductions for me. You know, when I was just like, listen, I want to talk to everybody. I want to just, like, learn. I want to see what's out there. I want to understand what could be. Um, and it's only because of those connections. And some of them are people who I hadn't talked to in years, but when I was ready to make a move, I'd pick up the phone and they had no problem talking to me and, you know, would make good introductions. And, and it matters to, to maintain those relationships, uh, invest in those relationships. Uh, I see so many people see relationships as transactional and it's, it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, they, they lose opportunities or then they get too nervous to ask somebody. And it's like, well, just, Pick up the phone, talk to them. Like, don't be scared. Like, have people want to talk to people. That's why we're social beings. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it's doing good work and doing good things for good people. I think if you focus on those two things, you'll be able to build a fantastic career, as obviously you have. So that makes sense. All right, that is going to wrap it up for today. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and the jobs that you have posted right now in the marketing department? Crypto.com is the place to go. And you can, I think you can find me on Twitter at S. Kalifowitz. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about 11FS, you know where to find us. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please do leave us a review. It matters a ton to us to see that support and feedback. You can also connect with us directly if you haven't already at 11FS on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can reach the production team podcasts at 11FS.com or myself, eric at 11FS.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. More episodes coming up very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.